All right, y'all, the other folks come in, take a seat. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name's John. I serve as pastor here at the Springs. This morning, if you're coming in where we're picking up, is we are jumping into week two of a new series of ours where we're working our way through the book of James. We're just going to start in a verse and keep reading through, turning right in the Bible till we get to the end. We're calling this series The Worthy Work. The Worthy Work. The reason we're calling it that is James. He's speaking kind of two themes throughout. Is because of this faith that you have, here's how you are called to live in faithfulness. It's this catalytic reminder to you and to me as believers. This faith does something. This faith evidences itself. But before we do that, I want to share with you guys, part of my story, part part of my background is, so I became a Christian uh, about two years after that. Two years after that, I had the privilege of transitioning on staff, jumped into vocational ministry for the first time at a church in Dallas. Church in Dallas there, I loved my time. I'd never worked for a church. I can remember going to write a resume because I applied for this basic like internship and thinking to myself, I have no idea how to write a Christian resume. No idea what that looks like. Do I put like service projects over like work experience? Like what do you do? But I end up taking this job and going to work. The, the folks in the families who'd started that church body, especially the staff in particular, they all came out of what I would call the camp world. Anybody here ever been to a Christian camp? Yeah, I haven't. Yeah, I hadn't done any of that. The closest experience I ever had, surprisingly enough, I worked for a Jewish camp in summer, kept kosher, not even kidding, not even kidding, kept kosher for an entire summer. I was on horseback staff. They didn't fully trust me to be a counselor, which was very fair, right? That was my closest experience, but that was kind of this connection to camp and the folks and everybody who was on leadership, they'd come from camp. And here's what that meant. They were these great men and women of God. They loved Jesus but they came from camp. That means they're also like that camp counselor personality type, like super goofy, love skits, love playing games, took Jesus serious and laughter serious. They did the two things. They introduced a game to me. It's called Farkle. Now, some of you laugh because you've heard of it or maybe you've been around it. Basically, Farkle, it's a dice game that involves a little bit of skill and a ton of luck, right? But the way, the, the way that Farkle's a little different, and it's why these folks brought it, is yes, there's a winner of the game, but there's also a loser, right? And there's a redemptive perspective to the loser, because the loser, what they do is they, they pay something called a consequence. It sounds super negative. If some of you are having flashbacks to my, my buddy Garrison preaching up here a couple weeks ago, set that outside of your mind. But it ends up being a moment where they have to pay a consequence, Now, these are things that are typically in the moment. It'd be something like, let's say it's December and you lose. Hey, you got to go jump in the pool outside, right? I know it's like personality type driven. Some of you are like, I would never work there, right? It was a great place. It could be things like you jump in the pool, you end up having to eat a meal without using any silverware. Like you have to eat a meal with no hands. It's just funny, silly things like that. I had friends who had to come to work dressed up is superheroes. Here's the whole purpose behind it. One, it came out of camp, but really it's this. It reminds me, it reminds us, it was just a tool to say, hey, ministry, it really can be hard, much the same way other jobs can be, but it can be hard. 
We want to take faith serious, but oftentimes we want to remind ourselves we don't need to take ourselves serious. It's okay to laugh at yourself. It's okay to goof off. It's okay to embrace a funny moment. Now, again, I know some of you, you can't imagine doing that. And some of you are like, dude, I would do that all day long. But that was a tool that I learned. I can remember paying a Farkle consequence. Now, I'm going to open up a little bit. You guys are going to see a side of me. I wondered whether or not I show you some of these photos. But you seem like a very trusting group. If it's your first time here, welcome. All that to say is, oh, wow, we're just jumping to it. There's a picture of me. If you can see that. So here, while I explain that picture, let's not show any more real quick. Here's why I explain that picture. I had the privilege of losing a Farkle consequence where I had to dress up as something that was outside of my norm, outside of my personal comfort zone. And I had to go to work, engage in every work meeting that I had for two weeks, doing my best to fairly and accurately represent a member of the goth community. Now, if you're here and you're part of the goth community or that's in your past, there's no point to make fun of, insult, disrespect. It'd be the same thing. They just need me to dress out of something that I wouldn't normally wear. It'd be like if we asked you to come and dress as a college, anybody get this term, frat star? Y'all know what I'm talking about? Like wearing khakis and boaters and all of a sudden you got whales on your pants and you're wearing a shirt that's a button down that's so pastel we can't really look at you clearly. It'd be like the same thing for that. So that was the only heart. So I end up having to do this for two weeks here. We got two more photos I'll show you guys to just bring on the embarrassment. That's my buddy Oscar laughing at me. Yeah, if you're wondering what that is on my lip, I think it's a smudge slash an attempted facial hair. It's embarrassing. Let's go one more. So this is the full outfit, right? That's the full outfit. I did it for two weeks. I hated it. It was terrible. Because you go into meetings, and the first thing you got to do is explain. But part of farkling is you can't tell people you lost a farkle. You have to say, no, I felt led to do this this week. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's soul-crushing. Some of you are like, this sounds like such a toxic work environment. Just wait. All that to say is, that was a leadership model that I loved, enjoyed, and it's something I have brought here. Why? Not everybody loves it. But what it does do is it brings a sense of joy and laughter, and it helps people not take themselves too seriously. Let me show you a picture of my friend, Leslie. This is my friend, Leslie. We're going to stay here for a second. She's on staff with us. She helps really oversee all things ladies, pastoral care. Leslie stepped up to the table, and she played Farkle with us right around the end of the year. The Farkle consequence, like all good consequences, you, you try to recycle them. You use ones and you keep. And Leslie so had the privilege of she inherited this. Oh, oh yes. Leslie, if you're wondering what that is, it's a fake neck tattoo. Some of you are like, I thought we were at church. What's happening? Oh yeah, and then we've got one, kind of a picture of her standing up, leaning against the wall. That is Leslie. Here, here was the thing, Leslie, I guess <laughs> some of y'all are weirded out. Leslie, it's funny looking out and seeing your faces. <laughs> Leslie, she went all out. Like she had this passion of, hey, I want to honor everybody in the goth community. I want to rightfully represent it. How do I do this? Part of her too, she like tapped into, no, John, I kind of dressed that way when I was in middle school. This should be easy, right? She went with her family. Her kids were a part of it. They embraced it. She like goes to drop them off at school. 
at school in the carpool line, right? Yeah, I got another story about Chick-fil-A in a second. Drop him off at the carpool line. She like walks around and her son's like, no, mom, you don't have to crawl through. You walk around. Show him, I don't care. All that stuff. Like she embraced it. She made the best of it. She had a meeting this past week at, uh, at Chick-fil-A, the Chick-fil-A right up there by H-E-B. The Chick-fil-A there, and it's lunchtime. If you've been there at lunchtime, it's like mom central, crazy, packed, people are everywhere. You stand there, and you wait in this long line to come, and then you turn the corner, and you walk in. And let's be real, Leslie stood out a little bit. So the whole time, everybody's looking at Leslie. She comes up, and sweet Leslie, man, the person takes the order. And Leslie, faithfully, because Leslie is an evangelist, she says, hey, we're going to pray for the meal. You got anything going on in life? We can just pray for it as we do it. And all of a sudden, the server's standing there and thinking through and engaging with Leslie. Is Leslie is maximizing this. You see, when I had to do it, I did everything I could to take every meeting on campus. I didn't want to go out in public like that. It was terrible enough doing around a bunch of coworkers. I did everything I could to meet this kind of standard, bare minimum, just get by. That wasn't Leslie. Leslie took this as a chance to have fun, to enjoy a moment, and not take life too seriously, while I resented something difficult, something embarrassing. And I get, most people would hate to do that, and you never would. You don't have to. Well, I resented it. She embraced it. Now, here's the thing. It's something silly. It's something small. It's dressing up like that. But here's the reason I think that really matters is this past week, I got to see Leslie every week embrace it. And it produced in me this sense of, man, I could have enjoyed that so much more. I I could have stopped and yeah, forget the way you dress, forget the way you do it, but embraced an attitude of, okay, I don't have to resent it. I can embrace it. Leslie showed me that. Here's the reason I start with strange photos The reason I start with that is because a lot of times in life, you and I, we are faced with difficult things, things that are trying, things that are hard. And the difference between that oftentimes is we can't change our circumstance. We can't always change what's going on externally, but internally, the attitude. That is something we can impact. While I resented it, Leslie embraced it. The reason I start with that is because today, the Apostle Paul, he's going to talk about how you and I, with things that matter far more than silly costumes, he's going to talk about how in the midst of difficulty, how in the midst of trials, how in the midst of pain, how in the midst of suffering, we're called not to resent it. We're not called to be delusional and fake the reality of difficult things are difficult. Tragedy is hard. There's real grief. He's not telling us to fake it and be delusional. But he is going to help us learn to embrace it. He's going to show us something, that there is purpose in the trial. There's purpose in the pain. The reason I think this matters so much is it's something Jesus, from the very beginning, if you're here and you're a follower of him, here's what he said was true. It's John 16, 33. It's this this famous section, I've said these things to you, 
that in me you may have peace. He sets up, hey, I've told you this. Why? Because I want you to have peace. And then he goes on, in this world you will have trouble. Your translation may say tribulation. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. If I was a liar and I was faking it and I was not a true Messiah, I don't think my slogan, I don't think my kickoff launch campaign platform would have started with, hey, follow me. I promise you will suffer. That wouldn't have been the way I went with it. Like PR companies today, they would not tell you to go that direction unless he's the savior of the world and he's beginning to introduce take heart. I've overcome the difficulty. You can trust me. There's purpose in the pain. That's why I think this talk matters. And if you're here and you're wrestling with faith, here's what I pray that you see or you're thinking about it. And this is such a catalyst, I pray to those of us who call ourselves followers of Christ. There's a difference between suffering, this is such a sensitive topic, suffering and suffering well. Difference between suffering and suffering well. Whether or not you believe in anything, that's true. The difference between the two is hope. It's, it's hope. Some people place the hope on, okay, the treatment plan, which is good. You, you need that. Right? They place the hope on, okay, I found the best surgeon. They place the home on, okay, well, even though my child, they made these destructive decisions that have brought difficulty to their life, they can take steps A, B, and C. They place the hope in these things. Christians, it's, it's not wrong to hope in that, but our ultimate hope, it's not here. It's not always something tangible and seen. Our hope is in a Savior. So that's where if you're here and you're wrestling with faith, I want you to see there's a difference between suffering and suffering well in Christians, followers of Christ who suffer. It should be a demonstration of there's something different about them. James is going to equip you and I to not just take the pain and waste it. He's going to equip us today with the reality of how does this difficulty produce maturity within me? And as we go to do that, what he's not doing is this delusional mindset of take the diagnosis, take the phone call, take the job loss, take the fear, take the family member that you wish was here and is not, take all that, man, set it aside, count it all joy. Walk it off. That's not James. That's delusional. That's not him. But what he is pleading with, what he is going to teach us is, hey, if you so trust in God, the truth of God, there's purpose in the pain. The difficulty is meant to produce maturity in this life, in the next. The way we're going to do that is we're going to read James 2 or excuse me, James chapter one, verses two through 12. We're gonna talk about it in three different ways. The first thing we're gonna see is James. He's gonna help you and he's gonna help me with a mindset to embrace trials. He starts and it's crazy. His, his opening line is shocking. A mindset to embrace trials. The second thing he's gonna help us with is a motivation to endure trials. And then the third, he's gonna give us the means, the tools by which we engage trials. 
James, for those of you who don't know, he's the half-brother of Jesus. He didn't believe in Jesus until Jesus came back from the dead and he appeared to James. It changed James' total life. He went on, lived a life of faithfulness. He's writing this letter to a group of people who had lived in Jerusalem, these believing Jews. These Jews, though, had just scattered due to persecution. They've literally fled for fear of losing their lives. They, they would have lost their jobs, their homes. For those who had it, likely they wouldn't have been able to take all their livestock, which would have been for them all forms of savings, investment. They walked away from it all. They've endured great trial. That's who James is writing to. James has just endured the same thing, yet he chose to remain. So as he opens this letter, James, in a personality of his, he just goes straight to it. He knows who he's talking to. He knows they're hurting. And he jumps right into the sensitive topic of trials. As we go to teach this, here's one of the things that's true. This, this text, what always matters when you teach text is, is tone. Like, is it this fun excitement for the joy of the Lord? He's come back. You always want to teach tone. What I would tell you guys is tone of this. James, he sits there from Jerusalem writing to friends he would have known who've scattered. And he's writing with a heart, and you'll see him in it, where he's saying, I know your pain. You know this pain. This is how we take heart. And he then builds on that out of the rest of this letter where it really shows faith in Jesus changes you. And he calls them to it as he calls us to it. Let's read now verse 2. James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. The first thing that James wants you and I to have is he's fighting to introduce to us this spiritual reality that difficulty never swept under the rug. Real grief is true, but difficulty by faith can produce maturity. As he's teaching us that, the first thing he wants to give us is a mindset to embrace trials. As you look at this breakdown, the word he starts out there with is count. It Maybe your Bible says consider. Count, it was literally a financial term. He's talking about it is of more value to be growing through suffering. And then he goes on, count it all joy. Your Bible may say pure joy. He's not talking about how in the midst of something difficult, have a tremendous amount of grief and then just a little bit of spiritual joy because you're supposed to. No. He's saying you can be marked by joy throughout. Not joy for the sake of the suffering but joy in the midst of the suffering. And you can hear just his heart where right here he just reminds them, my brothers. He's speaking to the reality of church's family, but he's speaking to them as one who's not just yelling at them of, hey man, walk it off. I, I know some bad things happened. Rub some dirt on it and keep going. No, he's appealing, my brothers. He's reminding them, I know the pain too. I remember when we all talked about how we would flee. I remember when we gathered in homes to talk about how we would go out in groups. Now, I don't see that in the Bible. I don't know exactly there, but that's what I would have done. 
If I was in Jerusalem and I had a fear of my life, I would have come, I would have gathered quickly with as many friends as I could, said, okay, guys, we have to get everything, the essentials, and we got to go. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, I love it too, because various kinds you know, he's including both the trial they went through and then whatever else may happen in the future. Trial there, it's the word for testing. It's used a few different ways in James 1. To its essence, what what it's doing in this context, a trial is something that proves, that evidences genuineness, shows what's true. He's telling them to count it joy when you go through something really hard because when you go through something really hard, it demonstrates faithfulness in God. How do you respond? You see him build on this in the next section. You see him begin to talk about the idea of how when you cling to God through the reality that suffering is a part of walking faithfully with Jesus, it shows you love Jesus. Like when people see Christians suffer in the midst of it, it evidences a reality of this is true. Like I could come, and many times you ask folks who walk through real pain, and there's this theme. You'll connect with them and they'll share, yeah, I went through something really difficult. And there's hard, there's grief, there's trauma, there's prolonged healing. That's a reality. But there's a theme you'll hear folks say. They'll walk away, and oftentimes with time and with thought, they'll walk away and they'll be able to say, but I did get to really realize I believe this. I did, I did get to really realize what I've always known. And I got to choose it, even when in the past I told others to choose it. It demonstrates a sense of faithfulness. It shows up as we try to count it joy. It's a different mindset. It is counter-cultural. Everything in my life I do, I tend to do it to avoid difficulty. James is saying, no, no, embrace it. I had a friend who he and his wife found out they were pregnant. They were so excited. Two days later, they got a phone call from the doctor they never wanted. They'd done a test, and this test had a 99% accuracy that this baby growing in the womb had a chromosomal abnormality. 99% chance of something called trisomy 18. It's a diagnosis that is incompatible with life. My friends, it's one of those, they hear it from the doctor and they don't know, hey, will they miscarry? Will the baby be stillborn? Or will the baby likely live for a short period of time? What do they do? Obviously, the doctor encourages them in the moment, hey, the next step is I would, I would terminate the life. They, because of faith, understanding life and the dignity of even something like count it joy, that wasn't their direction. The baby was set to be delivered January 1st, or excuse me, January 29th. I can remember Daniel and Kelly, man, good friend of mine. I can remember him coming and him asking his group of friends, hey, will you guys set your alarm every day for 1-29, January 29th, delivery day? And I can remember he came and he said, hey, here's what I'm asking you to pray for. I'm asking you to plead with God that he would miraculously heal this child. The diagnosis would be gone and there would be a healthy baby upon delivery in all the ways. Two. Will you pray that I have the faith to trust God 
no matter what. Every day in the middle of meetings, every day, and these were meetings like business meetings, pastoral meetings, extended lunches, every day this alarm would go off. I, we would pray that their baby, little boy by the name of Abel, would be healthy. And then, and then the second part we'd pray is on behalf of the parents to fight, to have a mindset to embrace it, that they would count it joy that if God brought health, either one, through miraculous healing, two, through, through physicians and the care provided, or three, he brought that baby boy home. They'd have faith to trust him. Abel was born, lived 15 days. He died sweetly in his mama's arms at home. We live in a broken and a fallen world. There's no one who dislikes the pain of the fall more than Jesus Christ. That's why he came to restore it, redeem it, and one day he will make all things new. But while we wait, there is great trial. I can remember Daniel and Kelly as they fought, as they've pled, as they've prayed. The funeral service started. They would appreciate if I said memorial. The memorial service started at 129. On behalf of the time they prayed, they came up, they shared their prayer. They came up, they shared their heart. They, they gave this talk. It's amazing. It was beautiful. I remember we all sat down, and this worship band comes up to sing this song. I, I wish we had more time. We would turn here. It, it's based on a verse out of Job 13, where Job says, hey, God, if you don't know the story of Job, he, he endured a lot of suffering and yet fought to trust God, to count it joy. And this song is titled, Though You Slay Me. It's based on a verse where it continues, where Job says, though you slay me, yet I will, and it's this theme, trust in you. I can remember we're all sitting there. They're saying this, and I'm kind of thinking, why are they playing this song? First couple to stand up was Daniel and Kelly. They had pled with God for a mindset to embrace trials. Did they grieve? Absolutely. Did they want that? No, but did they have a heart to say, I trust you, that even in a way I don't understand in this life or in the next, that this difficulty, this tragedy, this calamity, this pain, it is producing in me something, and I'm with you, a mindset to embrace trial. Let's pick up the Bible again. We're going to read verses three through four, three through four. Man, for you know that the testing of your faith, it produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The second thing that James says is, is he's showing this reality. He's teaching this truth. There's purpose in the midst of tragedy, that difficulty produces something, a, a, a steadfastness, a maturity. The second thing he says is there is a motivation to, and this word matters, endure trials. A motivation to endure trials. The first thing James starts out with, and that's where you can hear his tone, man. He starts out with, for you know. You could say it differently because you have so experienced. What did these people experience? Serious trials and pain as well as the joy of trusting Jesus in the midst of it. 
Perhaps while they gathered at homes and they planned, how do we flee? There would have been two feelings. I can imagine two feelings. One, man, we're going to have to leave everything. And two, but he came back from the dead. It's true. He changed my life. He is the Messiah. I believe in him. I trust in him. We got to go. He is enough for you know that the testing, he's continuing on, the testing of your faith, what does it produce? Steadfastness. Steadfast. It was fun even studying this word. The best word picture I could really imagine for you is imagine almost if you were able to forge, forge the words perseverance and endurance together. A resolute dependence steadfastness. And then he switches, hey, and let steadfastness have its full effect. He switches there. There's been multiple commands. He says, hey, count in all joy. And then in the midst of the trial, he's telling another, he's saying, let it have its full effect. Embrace it. Endure it. It is producing within you something. And then he tells us that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Per- perfect here does not mean sinless. Doesn't mean you never again sin, you don't have problems, you don't have bad days. But it means you're more mature. It's a developmental stage. It's you're further along in faithfulness. Complete here, it's talking about like spiritual wholeness, not lacking anything. Difficulty even when you don't understand it. And you could go so far as to say, especially when you don't understand it, produces something. Its intended outcome is steadfastness, said differently. It's a maturity. As I thought through this part, the thing that really stood out to me is that phrase, and let it have its full effect. In the divine providence of God. There's an allowance of difficulty in your life, not inflicted, not punished, but allowance of suffering in your life to produce something. We are fools to always try to say, well, here's why, or here's the reason. I would, I would encourage you to never try to do that, to just trust the heart of a good father. But we do have a responsibility to let the difficulty Produce steadfastness. Let it have its full effect. The phrase I couldn't get out of my head this week, don't waste it. Don't waste it. Here's here's the caveat. John, how am I supposed to waste? My baby that died with trisomy 18 after 15 days. What is that supposed to produce in me? How is God good and kind to so allow that? Hey, John, How am I not supposed to waste the reality of the company I worked for for 10 years? 10 years gave everything to you. They just let me go. My wife and I, there's no savings. How am I not supposed to waste it that I just got the cancer diagnosis at age 37 with three kids, the primary caretaker of them? How am I not supposed to waste that? There's two things. First, I have no idea. 
It would absolutely be foolish and unbiblical for me to try and claim the thoughts of God and to understand in eternity and the glory thereof what he has intended for his people. I have no idea. But my buddy James, he knew real pain. He knew real suffering. He knew what it was like to endure loss, heartbreak, like the type of heartbreak that just drives to the soul. And you wonder if you'll ever be the same again. And yet say, just like that song we sang at the beginning, in a way I don't understand, but with a God I do love, it is well. And even when it's not, he will make it well in this life or in the next. I had a friend her name's Ann Piper, dear friend. We worked together for years. Ann was a rock star. She was one of those personalities. You know how there's some people when you go to a meeting, they just make the meeting more fun, more enjoyable. You walk into a room, it's called the gift of woo. You walk into a room and all of a sudden you see them and you're like, God, so glad you're here. Just makes everything better, more lighthearted, more enjoyable. I can remember the last meeting I had with Ann before I came, I transitioned, stepped in here at the Springs. We were sitting there talking. She had a son. He was 18. He was transitioning, wanted to go to college in Georgia. I grew up in Georgia. She was asking me all about it, all this kind of stuff. And we were remarking on her family. Right? And as we were talking about her son, and she has a younger son, it jogged my memory. There was something I had forgotten. Right? There was something I had forgotten. You see, Anne, she was this gal that everybody, and we, we, it was vocational ministry. There were gals on staff, guys on staff. All these gals wanted to be discipled by Anne. They wanted to spend time with her. They wanted to go to meetings with her. She was funny. And then she would teach you the truth and the love of Jesus. She'd do it all. And the thing I'd forgot was the first time I'd heard about Anne. It'd been years before. Years before. I can remember hearing her story before I ever knew her personally. You see, Anne, she and her husband, they'd been married for 15 years. They had two children. They had a son at the time. He was 10, right? Their, their youngest son was nine. At age two and a half, their youngest had been diagnosed with autism. And she was the primary caretaker. One week, she's going along. She starts to have stomach pain. So she goes to see the doctor. The doctor runs some tests. It wasn't flu. It does a few more things. Anne found out three days later, she has kidney cancer. She had kidney cancer. Fast forward about, I think it was eight days. Eight days, Anne had surgery. They removed her kidney. They took her kidney out, and Anne goes home. She's resting at home. It was a major surgery. It took her time to recover. Right? She's resting at home. While she's at home, her air conditioning went out. Like, and this is August in Dallas. Like, that's a big deal. Right? Her air conditioning goes out. A few days go by. There's one night, though, where Anne, she's laying in, in her bedroom, right? She's comfortable enough. She's tired. She's just going to go to sleep. Her husband's there, and he says, hey, no, I, I'm going to go in the other room. They had a room with a wall unit. Hey, you got my number. Call me if you need anything. Anne was set for bed. He was there to help her. He goes in the next room, goes to bed. Next morning, Anne goes. She wakes up, goes about her day, goes into the room to check on her husband. Her husband died. Her husband died in the middle of the night. He'd had a seizure and died. Anne is there, primary caretaker of a young man with autism, recovering from cancer surgery with the loss of a husband 
At the time, she was 38. I have no idea the purpose and the intended maturity that God sought to bring in this life or in the next. But here's what I'll tell you. I saw Anne. I saw Anne fight by faith to not sweep it under the rug, to never be delusional with the pain or the trauma, but to trust in a good Savior to say he is producing something to grieve the loss. But to fight to say he is good, he has been for me, he loves me, he set me free, he loves my husband more than I do, he knows my situation with my boy, my family, how I need to be a caretaker in a different way, how I'm thrust into responsibility in a different way, how, how I now have to figure out how to both grieve and go to work at the same time. God knew every single bit of it. And she fought for the motivation to endure. If he is good, he loves me, and he can be trusted. Difficulty produces a steadfastness to those who cling by faith. The next thing James is gonna do is he's gonna give us three, three tools, three different ways to look at that is we transition to then verses um, five, excuse me, through 12, verses five through 12. He's gonna give us three tools. First one is going to be the, the tool of wisdom. The second one is going to be an eternal perspective. And the third one's going to be the reality of reward. Reward. What he's setting us up with is the means to engage the trial. See, James, like any good pastor, like any good follower of Christ, he sends us with tools that God Almighty, one, has laid out in his word long before we got the letter of James, but two, that James knew. We're going to pick it up, verse 5. We're going to read through verse 8. This is the theme, the means to engage the tool of wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. It will be given him. But, but, but let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man or woman, unstable in all his ways. See, James, his personality, what you begin to see him do is he takes these thoughts, and instead of being like perfectly linear, he's going to take these next three kind of supposed rabbit trails but you'll see how actually it's this beautifully constructed roll into the entire theme of there's purpose in the difficulty. The first one he sets out here is wisdom. The first thing you and I must have in the midst of suffering is wisdom. What, what, what is wisdom? Wisdom, it's biblical knowledge applied. Biblical knowledge applied. You cannot rightly suffer well. You cannot walk by faith in the midst of suffering apart from wisdom. And James is saying, hey, in the midst of it, ask God for it. And then he doubles down on the reality of it is a good father. Like Jesus loves you. He wants to help you. He's not here looking at you and saying, jump, monkey, jump. 
He looks at you and he looks at me and he says, I know pain. I know the difficulty. I want to help. He gives generously to all without reproach. If we had more time, we'd turn to passages that say things like that we may approach his throne with confidence. We may find the mercy and grace for our time of need. He wants to give generously, but then he sets it up. But don't do, don't do so if you doubt. Doubt here for the longest time, I think this is a very misunderstood passage. Doubt is not talking about do you believe in the existence of a God? Doubt here, and he builds on it as he talks about, it's like a wave tossed to and fro by the sea. It's like a, a man who staggers. Double-minded means double-souled. It's the person who clings to both. The wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world. I'll tell you this, there is no more painful place to be than half-heartedly committing to following the things of Jesus while half-heartedly saying, I'm gonna do my own too. Double-minded. It's double-minded because here's what James is teaching. That's why he says they don't doubt. The doubt there's not the existence of God. It's the character It's the nature of God. To almost put foot in both camps is to say to God, hey, I don't fully trust your ways. I have a backup plan. Like God, your plan B, but plan A is really this. God loves you and God loves me too much to bless hedged, partial, untrusting obedience. Now, here's the difference between the two. There's immaturity of faith that just doesn't know what to do. God's saying, I'll help you all day long. And then there is what I have done so many times in my life, where it is, hey, God, I know this is what you'd have me do, but hey, I'm going to still hold out here just in case. Stubble-minded, unstable, uh, staggering. It's the, it's the word picture there. Just the same thing as the, the wave tossed to and fro by the sea. It's like the drunk man unstable and immature. The first means, the first tool that James says, ask for help from God to endure the trial is wisdom. And the beginning of wisdom is is a reverence, a trust for God. One of the things we'll do at the end of the service is I'm gonna ask you guys to develop what I would call a theology, right? Ology, study, theo, God, a study of what does God have to say about suffering? The first thing that that theology begins with is fighting to understand the reality. He is good. He's a good father. If, if I ask him for bread, he doesn't give me a stone. He doesn't give me a serpent. Let's look at the next thing he gives us. Let's read now verses 9 through 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Lowly there, what he's talking about is poor, financially poor. But the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich, financially rich, in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away for the sun rises and perishes. Oh, excuse me. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So if you're like me, you may have read that at one time, or you may have just read that or heard that here now and be like, why is he talking about money? 
Like, why does he throw in this view of money? Because he's using money as a picture here of the means to engage trial. The second gift, the second thing to cling to is an eternal perspective, not an earthly perspective. That's why he says to the lowly, boast in their exaltation. Even though you are financially poor in this life, cling to the reality of you are an heir of the king. He will bestow riches on you. You are noticed by him. Even though, even though you may stand on a corner and folks drive by you and don't even give you the dignity of a look and a smile. I notice you. I love you. You are my child. Boast. It means to glory in your future exaltation. And then he goes on the same thing, hey, to the rich, right? Boast in your humiliation. And then he gives all these descriptors of it. Your wealth, it will fade. It is here today, gone tomorrow. It is a very cheap crutch to rely upon. He's saying when you die, you're not bringing that with you. It evaporates. There's no sense in boasting in that, so boast in the reality of you don't need the riches, you need Christ. You have the same inheritance as the poor. And you know what trials do? Trials are in a big way the great equalizer. Here's what I mean by that. A terminal diagnosis for the rich. Say, for example, Steve Jobs, right? He had the best medical care. He went to see the best doctors. He had the best treatment plan. He had it all. It was still a terminal diagnosis. Tragedies have a way of grounding you in what matters most. It's grounding you in a, this is not my home. Suffering, this life, it is but a vapor. Does that mean that sometimes that, that this life doesn't just hurt? No. But in the reality of the eternal perspective, not the earthly, we engage the trial. The third thing he rounds us out with is right there in verse 12. Verse 12. Blessed. Blessed here literally means, James is awesome. He's literally saying, you know who's happy? That's what blessed means. Happy. Happy is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The third means by which we engage the trial, it's the reality of reward. Reward. You see that in this life and in the next, blessed. I tell you, you go hang out with folks, and many of you may have been through this, that are during chemo treatments, Find the one who has hope and find the one who doesn't and see who you enjoy sitting beside them. Right? Or the one who's been just placed recently on dialysis. Find the one who has hope and find the one who doesn't. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, happy. It's the reality of not only blessing in this life through the reality of God is with me, he is good, I can trust him. Even when I don't understand it, this difficulty is producing something, a maturity by faith as well as I know where I'm going. I know that in the midst of the pain of this life, here's what's true, Christian. 
God wants you to so long and look forward to heaven that everything else here, as James's friend, the apostle Paul would say, you would count as rubbish. If you don't know what rubbish is, the most, the most appropriate way I could say it on a Sunday morning without you guys thinking that I cussed is let's just call it like trash. Count it trash compared to what life with the king would be like, the eternity. And then as well as, and we don't have time to turn to all these, the reality of trusting God by faith produces a maturity, not only that, but a unique form of glory for you in eternity. There's not just the reward of eternity with him, but a reward itself. What that looks like, I don't fully know. You see James alluding to it there. They received the crown of life. The crown there, it would have literally been a reference to the wreath that an Olympian would have received and put on their head for winning gold. That's what he's referencing. James is saying in the midst of the pain, the heartache, the suffering, the trial, cling to wisdom from God, trusting in his character, not hedging in our faithfulness. James would then say, hey, have an eternal perspective. If you view just this, your status, your position, and your station, it's not enough. James would say, there's a reward. He is coming. He will bring you home. And he sees you. Difficulty, Christian, is not meant to be resented or rejected in a divine way, never being delusional to sweep it under a rug, never not acknowledging the tragedy or the pain of a moment. But it's meant to be embraced. Difficulty produces, by faith, maturity, even when we don't understand it. We get that through this mindset, a count it all joy. We get that through a motivation. It's producing a steadfastness in me. Church, God wants you to be known for being steadfast, resolute dependence, despite the circumstance that when you get the phone call, the diagnosis, the loss of the loved one, Yes, you grieve. Yes, you mourn. Yes, you cry. But we are not those who mourn without hope. And in the midst of the pain, we cling to the trust of the Savior. He gives us wisdom and eternal perspective in the reality of reward one day life with him in the glory thereof. So here's what I'm asking from you. Church, we just started this, this series First thing James wants for you and he wants for me is he wants you and I to develop the language I once heard, a ruthless theology of suffering. Here's how I think we do that. If, if you ever wanted to learn, I did this once at a camp um, to sail a, we'll call it a boat, but really it was a really small thing, Right? You do that, likely, in a bay, at a harbor, beside a lake, calm day, not a ton of wind, not high waves, no chop. That's how you learn to sail. In the midst of a calm sea, you also then learn for, hey, if the sea wasn't calm, if I couldn't see the night sky to plot the stars to see which direction to go, if I didn't know exactly how to take up the mast in the midst of it, because all of a sudden the mast is going to turn me sideways, the first place you learn to sail in the midst of a storm is still in calm seas. That way, when the storm comes, 
You've prepared. You have anticipated. You have taken heart, for in this world you will have trouble. I'm asking you guys to think through, not plan out the pain, but regardless of the situation or the circumstances, what do you believe? How will you respond? Is he good? Do you believe he's in control? Do you trust his sovereign care? Do you believe it produces within you a maturity? Or is it fickle and meaningless and how could he? And if he, if he really loved me, when I asked him to heal, he would have never done that. Your theology of suffering deeply impacts how you will walk through pain. I'm asking you, and I'm reminding me, we must develop a theology of suffering. Based on what? He is good. He can be trusted. Even when I don't understand. Difficulty produces maturity by faith. My friend Anne that I told you about, the first time I heard her story, the first time I heard it, and we'll close with this, I was sitting in a service much like you guys are today. I'd just uh, recently graduated undergrad. I'd come out of that. My life was marked by an addiction to pornography, terrible relationship with drinking, terrible relationships with females, ton of brokenness and pain. I'd been depressed. I'd gained 40 pounds in two years. I was out of my mind. I was having heart pains, like, like crippling heart pains where I went to a doctor and he's like, no, nah, man, it's just stress. Self-induced stress. My parents, I'd moved to Dallas. I, I, I was in Georgia. I moved to Dallas. My mom, literally, she dropped me off at a church. I didn't know I was going there. She dropped me off at a church because she knew I needed help. I sat in services on Sunday for about three months. Halfway through those services, I heard the story of Anne. I sat in the very back, I wasn't talking to anybody, and I can remember hearing about a woman who by faith was striving to be steadfast in the midst of pain, difficulty, caring for a child, and here's what I can remember thinking. Hmm. That makes no sense. I can remember sitting there and thinking, this pastor's crazy. Because in my mind, the reality of God is good. I didn't even trust that, didn't even understand that. In a way that I have no idea entirely what God intended for the reality of Anne's story, but here's what I know. Part of that was for me, because I heard that. And I remember thinking, that doesn't make any sense. I kept tracking and reading my Bible. I tried to do the math today. I don't remember the exact date, but I think about four weeks later, I trusted Christ sitting in a shoebox apartment by myself in downtown Dallas. That was the first time where the Holy Spirit illuminated, where I realized I am such a broken sinner in need of a savior, that my sin led to the death of Jesus Christ, that he doesn't come to me and say, hey, John, Get it together now. Be better. Can't you change? No, he doesn't do that. He looks at me and he says, believe. Believe I died for you. Believe I thought of you. Believe I rose from the grave to prove this is all true. I changed history and I'm changing you. I got that for the first time. Once I got that, 
I can remember thinking back on Anne. Because Anne, in the midst of that, was fighting to count it joy in the midst of trials where, man, I was 21. I had no idea that kind of pain. She was fighting to count it joy in the midst of suffering for Jesus. And I can remember connecting the dots of this verse. We're not going to put it up here. It's Hebrews 12, 2. It's talking about Jesus. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, but he endured the cross for the joy set before him. You know who the joy was? Me. You. You. The cross was a moment where Jesus was torn from the Father in excruciating pain to where we don't understand. That was suffering. He fought to so count it as joy. He sought to so view it as for the joy of having a relationship with John. I'll die. For the joy of having a relationship with you. I'll die. Anne fought to count as joy for Jesus because she knew, even when she didn't understand, even when it didn't make sense, even when all she had in her was pain and turmoil and trauma and grief, that Jesus, for the joy set before him, suffered for Anne, for her husband, for her son, for the family, that he was good, he was kind, And one day, he will make all things new. By faith, difficulty, tragedy, calamity, pain produces maturity. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for the reminder of that. God, even the heaviness and the difficulty. Father, uh, I ask that you would would first grow in all of us a love of, for you and how a love for you means we trust in you despite the pain. May we never negate the reality of real suffering. Never, may we never try to be people who, who say, if I can't pinpoint it, then it's not there. No, we trust you. You are good. Would you so stir that in me? Would you stir that in the hearts of people? God, if there's folks who don't know you in that way, may they come to know you. And I thank you for the time. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, y'all, hey, thank you guys for coming. Thank y'all for letting us keep you a little later than normal. Y'all go. Have a great week of worship.